0: Our reading and sermon text this afternoon comes to us from Ephesians chapter two. Well, chapter three. Some of y'all were like, we're going backwards. No, <laughs> chapter three. We're gonna be in verses seven through 13. So we're standing in honor of God's word for what it is, that it is living, that it is inerrant, that it is infallible and sufficient for all that we need in life and godliness. So hear it now as it is intended. Verse seven, of which I "'was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, "'which was given to me according to the working of his power. "'To me, the very least of all saints, "'this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles "'the unfathomable riches of Christ, "'and to bring to light what is the administration "'of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God "'who created all things, "'so that the manifold wisdom of God "'might now be made known.'" Through the church, to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places, this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. Amen. Please be seated. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let me pray for us before we begin. Father in heaven, we ask now that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law, just as the psalmist says in Psalm 119. Lord, there is much to be mined in every section of your word, every portion of it, we know that all of it is inspired and profitable for us. So we ask that we would gain the maximum profit that can be gained from these passages in the limited time that we have this morning to look at them. And Lord, not that we would merely be filled with more knowledge, that we might win more arguments in online chat rooms, but that we might be actually changed, that we might be conformed further to the image of Christ, Lord, we don't merely want to be brilliant, though we know that your truth must come into our minds first. And we don't merely want to be fervent, though your truth must go from our minds to our hearts. But we want to be active doers of your word so that your truth goes through our minds, into our hearts and out our hands, that we might be found faithful when you return. And so, Lord, we ask that as we ask every Lord's Day that you would stack one more brick on the house of our sanctification, that this morning might be added to that, that the sin that we've been uh, currying would be killed, that the effort that needs to be exerted would be uh, brought forth, that the encouragement that we need to hear would be heard, and that the clarity that we need to navigate such a deceptive and sin-sick world would be attained in in a little bit further portion than what we had before we came in today. Lord, we know that you have decided to act in a unique way when your church gathers to offer up the worship that we owe to you. And so we lean upon that promised reality today as we do every single Lord's Day, every seven days. And we ask this humbly yet expectantly in Christ's name, amen. Well, there are days in history that echo through time, days when something truly stunning occurs, something that almost can't be believed yet won't soon be forgotten. Today is indeed one of those days. Why do you ask? Well... It is because I have alliterated not three, but six points in a sermon. I mean, and I'm not talking about like letter P or letter S, like easy letters, this is letter M. All these M words. And are these alliterated headings inspired? No, of course not. Are they nearly inspired? Well, who can say, but yes. no. We're going to look at verses 7 through 13, and let me just give you the headings so that you can follow along with them as we go. Verse 7, we're going to see the church's ministers. Verse 8, we're going to see the church's message. Verse 9, we're going to see the church's mystery. Verse 10, the church's mission. Verses 11 and 12, and this is where you got to kind of go with me a little bit. The church's mooring, M-O-O-R-I-N-G, like a boat's mooring, it doesn't leave the dock. And then verse 13, this is a real word. The church is metal, M-E-T-T-L-E, not metal like metal, metal like uh, resilience. We'll get to it. Obviously, the central focus of the passage that we read in those few verses is Christ's church. Before Paul concludes this doctrinal section of the book of Ephesians with this exalted prayer that we're gonna get into next week, what he does is lay out the church he's determined to make the nature and the purpose of the church clear and this is along with his own ministry he's going to explain that but that it goes it goes all together so we got to know what the church is before we know what she does and what she does begins in chapter four so we got to have chapter three end before we can get to that there exists today as in most every era that has been on the planet, a sea of confusion about the church. Some treat it like it's a business. Some treat it like it's a charity or that it's an activist group. Some treat it like it's a a lobbyist politically. Some treat it like a public platform or group therapy. Some people act like the church is like a, a clinic or a mechanic shop, you go in when you need to tune up, so you got something wrong, nothing's wrong, you don't need to go. We got plenty of misperceptions about the church, but on a more basic level, what constitutes a church? What makes an assembly of people a church and another assembly of people not a church? So what John Calvin would say is that there's three marks that would identify a true church. The first being the right preaching of the word The second being the right administration of the sacraments, Lord's Supper and baptism. And then third being the right practice of church discipline. Now, what he did was he took all of the New Testament and condensed it down into those three categories that at bare minimum, if a group of people assembled together calling themselves a church has those three things, then that's a church. That's a real church. And we're gonna see as we look through these verses, we're gonna see six things six elements of a true church that would fit in one of those three categories that Calvin used in a broader sense in condensing down all of the New Testament. We're not gonna look at all the New Testament, we're just gonna look at these verses to help us understand the nature and the purpose of the church, and you need to know this. Sometimes when we talk about things like this, like what is the church, what do we do? It's easy to check out and say, well, that's your job, Pastor. You're supposed to know all this stuff. We don't have to. No, 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 what are you gonna do when I go crazy? What are you gonna do when you move and go somewhere else? Who's gonna hold the leadership accountable if it's not the people of God themselves that demand we will have a true church? So you must know these things. And so we're gonna get into it here in verse seven. Now, we obviously understand and when when we read the text that we jumped in the middle of a a sentence there. And this is a long run on sentence that goes on for a little bit. So we back up to verse six uh, about the mystery that Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. Now, verse seven begins where we see the church's ministers the gospel of which I was made a minister. The gospel of which I was made a minister. We're looking at the church's minister. That word minister there is the word diakonos in Greek, which is where we get the word deacon, which just means servant. So Paul says, I'm a servant. He's not there for himself. He's there for Christ and his people. Any true church, as a true minister who is not there for himself, but is there for Christ and his people. And Paul modeled this. Look at Philippians 1, 21 and following. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We hear that, we memorize that real easy, but it keeps going. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, but I do not know which to choose. Do you hear the apostle Paul saying, I don't know if I'd rather die or keep living. And he's gonna gonna explain why. Verse 23, but I'm hard-pressed in both directions. Having the desire to depart and be with Christ, that is Mary much better. Do you think like that? I'd rather die, that would be better. Paul's not kidding. Yet to remain on the flesh is more necessary for who? For you. I would love to die, Paul says, and go be with Christ. But for you, I'm gonna stay. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress. Enjoy in the faith. He's not here for himself. He's here for the church. And all he did was just get that from Jesus, who models it and describes it in John 10, 11 and following. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand, or an older translation might say a hireling, not a shepherd, who is not an owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he has a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. Paul laying down here by calling himself a minister, which is just a servant. That's all that word means. He's just following Jesus's model. Jesus is the model shepherd prophet for ministers. The minister's life is to be spent in the service of others in the church, not his own. The ministry is, is nothing more than a call to come and die. That's all it is. Now, sadly, there's the shameful reality of pastors in, in, in the Western world, particularly just now left only in the United States, no longer in Europe, no longer in Canada, that you have the opposite of this. As you have men getting into the ministry, calling themselves ministers and servants when they're really there to just get from them. You exist for me in that model versus the pastor existing for the church. And we see that all over the place. They got billboards on highways. They, they're, they're, I mean, the ridiculousness, they go, we could go on and on and on about the stuff that's on social media of pastors berating their congregation because they don't have nice enough watches and the pastor down the street does and don't you want me to look as good as him? And I mean, on and on and on, these kinds of things. That is such a far cry from the biblical standard from the apostle Paul in Romans 1, 14 and 15. He says, I am under obligation I'm under obligation to Greeks and to barbarians, to the wise and to the foolish. To do what? So for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Under obligation means a debtor. I owe you and everyone the gospel. You don't owe me anything, but I owe you the gospel. I have to tell you the gospel and all that goes with it. The entirety of the scriptures, He says in 1 Corinthians 9 16, for if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I'm under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Shame on those men who say, I'm not gonna show up and preach unless my salary is X. Unless I have this, unless there's these circumstances. Paul says, he doesn't even know anything about that. I'm under compulsion. I have to do this. I must preach the gospel. There's nothing, I owe it to you, to the whole world, he says. Hey, everybody who walks and moves and breathes because he's a servant, a servant of the church. And what else does it say in verse seven? For which I was made a minister according to what? According to my own hustle and intellect, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me. The gift of God's grace ministers in the true church are a gift. No man can make a minister. Only God can do that. If consider Paul's calling as the most obvious understanding of that, right? Who, who in the world would have ever have thought that this guy could be a minister in the church of Jesus Christ? When he gets converted, nobody believes it. He's that far gone. We don't even believe you as a Christian, let alone a minister. So unlikely. So you see him as the extreme reality of this, but no amount of formalized training can make a man what he is not. Christ has made him that or he has not. And there's nothing uh, 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 intrinsically noble or more noble. It's God making sovereign choices. You can't make somebody do this. Seminary and training can only provide polishing. Polishing. It can polish something, but those kinds of institutions are not factories. Sometimes we think that. We think that like if they're like a factory. You take the raw materials, you shove it into the machine, it goes through the assembly line, and it pops out the product, right? But that's kind of how a lot of all of our other educational things happen, right? You go to four years, you get an engineering degree, then you get to have that title after your name, you pass the exam, and now you can build bridges, but anybody in here who's an engineer knows there's plenty of guys out there who shouldn't be building bridges. When my brother went through medical school, he was like, whew, people do come in the bottom of their class. Somehow we all get told that every doctor we've ever visited is the best in their field at this. Somebody had to be last. I mean, somebody had to be. So then we get into, I remember being in seminary classes thinking, who told you guys to come to here? Who said, yeah, man, you should do this. And at the end of the day too, we can't lean on these institutions because what do they exist for? The propagation of the institution. And how do you do that? You gotta have students. So we're not really concerned on whether or not God has made you this, but do you have the money to pay for this? And if you do, come on in. That's not all of them, but that's plenty of them. God makes ministers, not the other way around. Spurgeon said he he would tell his he had a college, of minister's college, 1800s in London, and they would come to his church and he would send you out if you weren't large chested enough because there wasn't microphones back in those days. And he was like, well, if God made you to preach, then he gave you a body to be able to do it. And if he didn't give you that body, then you shouldn't be here. So he'd kick him out right then. And then he would tell him, if you can go and do anything else and be remotely happy and content with life, go and do that. Because if you don't, and then you get in here and you see how hard it really is, then you're gonna end up there anyways. So if you can't go and do anything else, go and do those things because ministers are made according to God's gracious gifts. We're gonna get into that in a big way in chapter four, verses 11 and 12, but we're not there yet. So we're gonna leave the bulk of that discussion for then. But what we're seeing here is in the conclusion of this doctrine of the church is that God provides ministers for his churches and he appoints stewards to look after his bride while he is gone. That's really what we're supposed to be doing. Just keeping this bride as pure as possible until the bridegroom comes for her. And what does Paul do it according to? As this servant, as this minister, according to the working of his power. Paul has no power of his own. Churches cannot rely on their minister's power. Why? Because he has none. That's why. Paul says in Colossians 1:28, 29, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose, I also labor according to what? Striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. His power. Second Corinthians 12, nine and following, he says something similar. And he has, God has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, Paul says, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. See, when your your minister's strength is the fuel of your church, you should be real worried because that's not what anything, that's not how God works his power. He works his power through weakness. When he is weak, then you should rejoice. Christ builds his church. No man does it. See, men may build large gatherings that happen to meet on Sundays, but they're not churches. If it's according to their power, then they're not churches. Only Christ, by his power, builds his church with his chosen instruments, his chosen servants. That's the minister of Christ. And Paul is not ashamed to hold that out in any way because he has one message as the minister. Verse 8 the church's message is to me, Paul says, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. See the very least of all saints. He says something similar in a couple other places in the New Testament and very least there in the New American Standard translates like that, but it could be literally leaster or, or least of the least. And he's not kidding. He believes this about himself. This isn't a humble brag. So the Ephesians would go, no, Paul, you're pretty good. I mean, you're actually awesome. And he's like, oh, okay, well, thanks. No, no, he means this. But the closer he gets to Christ, the more sinful he sees himself to be. And he also is permanently and forever aware of, I used to murder the church of Jesus Christ. So I have absolutely nothing to boast about. I can look at myself as the least of it. And, and then he goes on in the Christian life and he keeps being able to say this. Why? The closer you get to the light, the dirtier you realize that you are. You've been playing out in the mud and the woods all night long. And the closer you get to the house where the light is, You start seeing, oh, oh, whoa, how dirty you really are the closer you get to the light. The same is true for the Christian life. The closer you get to Christ, the more sinful you realize that you actually are, the deeper that it actually goes. If your minister doesn't think of himself in this way, then get out. It means he's not personally growing any closer to Christ, merely using the church, rather, to display his talents and fuel his pride This is how Matthew Henry spoke about it. This is a Puritan. He said, those whom God advances to honorable employments, he humbles and makes low in their own eyes. And where God gives grace to be humble, there he gives all other grace. You may also observe in what a different manner the apostle speaks of himself and of his office. So Paul's talking about himself lowly, but the role of the minister in the church very highly. He says, while he magnifies his office, he debases himself. Observe, a faithful minister of Christ may be very humble and think very lowly of himself, even when he thinks and speaks very highly and honorably of his sacred function. That's the place that you wanna be in the church. The minister thinks lowly of himself, but highly of the job. Because what is the job? That has a message to preach the good news. It says in verse, uh, verse eight, the very least of all saints, is say, this grace was given to do what? To preach. Now, that word preach in the New American Standard Bible is, I think, an unsatisfactory translation of the Greek. The word that is translated just as one word preach in this text is the word euangelizo. Now, that literally means to proclaim the good news. Your translation might say that. And it's the word for gospel. The word for gospel is euangelion. And then Paul took that word and made, it a, uh, made that noun a verb. So from euangelion to euangelizo, which literally would mean in English, gospeling. But that doesn't really make a lot of sense. So it's proclaiming the good news is what it means, to proclaim the good news. Now, do you know, we're going to pause just real quick. Do you know why the gospel is called the good news? We say that all the time, we know that's a Christian thing, but if somebody pegged you to the wall and said, tell me why it's good news, what would you say? Why is it good news? There's a simple explanation of it. Because everything else, the Old Testament law included, is bad news. Every other religion is bad news, why? Because it says, do this, keep these, and then you will live. That's bad news because you can't do those things and you can't keep those precepts. But the gospel is different. It's called good news. Why? Because Jesus did those things and kept those precepts and you get to live just by believing in him. That's why it's good news and everything else is bad news. So Paul says, that's the one message that must be preached. It must be heralded. We have to keep talking about it. People must hear it. Even if they don't want to, they must hear it because it's their only hope for life and death. It's being found in Jesus Christ. It's the singular message of the church. Paul had no other message. We have no other message. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 and 2, and when I came to you, brethren... I did not come with superiority of speech, meaning great oratory skills. He can just really weave together things in a perfect illustration, the tearjerker, the slight laughter, and then the somber reflective moment at the end. I didn't come with any of that, Paul said, or with wisdom, meaning the world's wisdom. But I became proclaiming to you the testimony of God because I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul knew a lot of stuff. He knew all of the philosophers. He knew world history. He knew the Old Testament law. And he says, I came with you to you with nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. So we don't, as the church and our message, we don't dilute the message by adding to it. We're smart enough to know we never take away from it, but you dilute it just as badly by adding to it. We preach Christ and the facts of science. We preach Christ and the wonders of essential oils. We preach Christ and the benefits of Bikram yoga. We preach Christ and anything else and you've lost the gospel. It's gone. Anything else and you've lost the gospel. See, this is what liberal churches in the United States did in the 50s and the 60s. They got a little bit wiser after the 20s and 30s with the open liberalism. And they were like, well, here's what we'll do instead. What we'll do is, is we'll just collect everything that any church has ever said about doctrine and theology about who Jesus is and we'll put it all together and then we'll just tack on like one little statement that says at the end of the day, you can take it or leave it. But we've just made our doctrinal statement even bigger. That was the strategy done in the mainline denominations. And what it did was effectively kill them and made them pantheistic universalists. Anything goes and nothing matters because we don't just preach Christ and him crucified. One time when I was doing college ministry at Texas A&M, I was just doing evangelism. You're just pulling people aside and asking them about the gospel. And there was a guy out there who claimed to be a Hare Krishna, which is some version of Hinduism. This guy does not look like a Hindu at all but he's out there and he's just you know trying to give away the bhagavad-gita the, the book that they kind of call their scriptures and 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 then i'm getting engaged with this guy in a discussion and i'm talking about jesus and repeating that over and over and he goes oh we we love jesus we love all oh, his wisdom and all oh you know oh, absolutely that's the wonder of the hari krishna jesus is all in part of it I said, yeah, but what about the exclusivity of Jesus when he says that everything else you're saying is a lie? And then right then, conversation was over, pulled the Bhagavad Gita out of my hand and was gone. Because as soon as you say what the Bible says, we have one message and we have one Savior, there is one Christ, there is only one way to God, you've eliminated yourself from fellowship with everybody else. But that is the message. If we don't preach Christ, then who will? there's no one else. If we don't keep him central to our church, then what do we have to offer anybody? Six Flags is more fun. Actual rock concerts are better than anything any church is trying to do with a fake rock concert. What do we have to offer anyone if we don't have the gospel? Who else is offering this? Who else is, and this isn't a marketing scheme. This is heaven and hell, this is life and death. So what, why would we say anything else? This is our one message. This is Paul's saying in verse eight, this is what I've been called to do, to preach the good news, to proclaim, to Galizo, to proclaim the good news. He says, we have one bell and we ring it till our arms fall off. And then we go home to be with the Lord. And as God would have it, it's that one message that encompasses all of life here and eternal. Why? How? It's because verse 8 says at the end that it is the unfathomable riches of Christ. The riches of Christ are unfathomable. means you can't get to the bottom. To fathom is is a seafaring term to figure out how deep the water is beneath you. And if it's unfathomable, it means all of the instruments that you have, whether it's primitive or advanced, you don't know how deep it is. It just keeps going. It's beyond the reach of your instruments to measure. That's the riches of Christ. And that phrase, riches of Christ, pops up over and over again, or riches in the heavenly places in the book of Ephesians. It pops up many, many times. But so then you got to think if they're unfathomable, then how could we ever be done? How could we ever get past it? How can we ever say, yeah, okay, that's 101. And now we go on to something else. If the riches of Christ are unfathomable, we are never done. We're never done until we get to glory. And if we get to glory, we're not gonna go, oh, now I know everything there is to know about Christ. If they're unfathomable now, they will be then. We'll know more and more. We'll just keep learning more and more forever. We'll keep knowing more and more forever. That we can't ever stop. We can't ever stop with the riches of Christ you'd be shocked to know that I have been told to stop not by anybody here but I've been, we all we get it everybody here is already Christian we just move past this been told that by a serious minded person and I, I've heard of a, a guy who taught at my seminary who went to a church that was lost its way in need of help and then eventually one of the church officers I can't remember if it was elder or deacon gets in his face and says stop preaching Christ like this no more Christ. But we can't because the riches of Christ must be heralded by his church. It's our one message. It's all we got. And by the time we die, we will have barely scratched the surface of his glory. Every sermon is in some sense a failure because we can never preach Christ as majestically as he deserves. Nevertheless, that's what we've been told to do. That's the one message. The church also has... The mystery in verse nine, if you remember back, we talked about mystery last week, and to bring to light it says in verse nine, what is the administration of the mystery for which ages for which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things that mystery the word mystery musterion it's something that can't be fully known unless it's revealed. it can't be fully understood unless somebody who has the authority can uncover it and display it and reveal it, and so that we talked about was the church having Gentiles without becoming Gentiles, without becoming Jews in the people of God. That was the mystery that was fully unveiled. We talked about Abraham's offspring, right? Genesis 12, he knows that a great nation is gonna come from him. Genesis 15, he knows it's gonna come from his body. Genesis 17, it's gonna come from his and Sarah's body. And then you get to Galatians three, where it says anybody who is in Christ is the offspring of Abraham. So the mystery of the church, Paul says here, is connected to the gospel, That to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, things which which for ages have been hidden in God who created all things. This is the gospel connected to the mystery. The mysterious nature of the church in the old covenant is made clear in the preaching of the gospel of the new covenant. How so? Who do you preach it to? You preach it to everyone, right? Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples of how many nations? All nations. Okay, so it's for everyone. Can people from all backgrounds actually be saved or are you just preaching to them to, you know, spin your wheels? Well, they can be saved because Revelation 7, 9, John, looking at a vision of heaven, says, after these things I looked and behold a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, any category you can possibly think of, there's a representative there in heaven standing before the throne, and before the lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. So yes. Well then, are there rankings in God's kingdom? No. Galatians 3, 27 to 28. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, first class citizen, second class citizen. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female for you are all one in Christ. Okay, so this is the new covenant making more sense there's no rankings. Well, then what proves their equality in the church? The Holy Spirit does. Acts 15, seven and nine. And there had been much debate. Peter stood up and said to them, brethren, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you, that by my mouth, the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. So therefore the gospel, i.e. the message that unites the church, did indeed start with the Jews, but it was never exclusively for them. It was God's covenantal love that was always going to go the span of the globe. That's the mystery connected. And it's what Paul's not ashamed of. Romans 1, 16 and 17, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Why? for is the power of God to salvation. What is the power of God? Power, the word dunamis, where we get our word dynamite. What, what, what's more powerful than God? What power does God not have? And then that then is conveyed to people through the gospel. Now, it does indeed go to the Jew first and also to the Greek, but it for everyone, because in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as written As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Everybody who has faith will be granted the declaration of righteous. This is the mystery made known, made plain. And it's all in the sovereign timing of the creator at the end of verse nine, which has been hidden, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. He hid it for ages. Think about that. Millennia go by before Jesus comes on the scene and makes that mystery clear. But God is the creator of all. He's the architect and the designer of everything. When that mystery was to be made clear and he chose to do it about 2,000 years ago, that's when he decided to do it. And he is sovereign over it. The mystery that is. But the church then is left with a mesh, a mission in verse 10. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. That, that word manifold. That might not be as clear as it should be. I think it's a car park in some places. I don't know that, but I do know this. it only appears one time in the entire New Testament. It's the Greek word polypoikilos. And it means many-sided or diverse. Many-sided or diverse. And it only appears here in the entire New Testament. And it's the idea that the wisdom of God just keeps unfolding. And unfolding and unfolding and you see more of it and more of it and more of it, like a diamond that's been masterfully cut. Every time you turn it, you see a new twinkle, a new angle, a new brilliance that comes out and you just can't stop seeing that every time you move it. The wisdom of God, it just keeps unraveling. The longer you're around it, the more expansive it becomes. One of the reasons why Esther was so worthwhile in us preaching through a while back, because it's scripture, number one, but then two, it, it highlights the manifold wisdom of God. Because everything that keeps happening, why is Esther here at this time and Mordecai there at this time, and he overhears that, and she has this kind of skill, and she has this kind of, it just happens, and all of it keeps unfolding, and you see this plan happen, a condensed digestible story, just 10 chapters, to see the manifold wisdom of God. And then you extrapolate that out. That level of management, oversight, ordination is happening everywhere all the time with every person, with every blade of grass, with every corner of a forest or a sand dune. He's moving those grains of sand around all over the Sahara Desert, all on purpose to make the dune shape the way he wants to be, even though no human will ever see it the manifold wisdom of God. And so you think about that, we see his wisdom unfold as he just causes to worship. That's all I should do, cause us to worship. At times he graciously lets us see it. We get to see a little bit of it unfolding like, wow, I, I'm here with this circumstance because of these things that happened, many of which I didn't think would be any good. We're, we're gonna be for my ill, but they weren't. But the key is then trusting when difficulty comes and he's not explaining it to you that he is still manifoldly wise and worthy of trust. See, that's, the that's where I live, that difficulty. But the church shows the wisdom of God and salvation's plan. That's the real context of what verse 10 is after. It's not just uh, God's manifold wisdom in general and in his providence over the planet, over the globe. It's in the church. What is the wise plan of God? It's the salvation of the elect, the condemnation, of the reprobate, all for his glory. Essentially, it's his plan of wrath and grace. How does the church display this then? The mission of the church displaying this by existing as his called out covenant community everywhere that the gospel has been taken root in the midst of a wicked world populace. See, the church merely existing displays God's grace as opposed to his coming wrath on everyone outside the church. The true church is the only group of people that is actually different than the rest of the world. Have you sat and contemplated that before? The true church is the only group of people that's actually different than the rest of the world, wherever that true church exists. The true church worships Christ alone, and everybody else is an idolater. That's the difference. That idolatry can come in all kinds of shapes and forms and presentations, but that's the difference. The difference is the people of God are just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We will not bow. We will not bow to that. We look different than everybody else because we won't bow. The church proves this division internationally by not being sequestered to one people group or one country. True worship of the triune God happens around the globe. There are churches that are already wrapped up for the Lord's Day. Based on the way that they are, where they are on the planet, but they were worshiping. There are some that are just beginning. True worship of the triune God happens all across the globe in defiance of their surrounding culture. And there is no middle ground. There isn't Kenyan Christianity versus Mexican Christianity versus Vietnamese Christianity. There isn't white Jesus and black Jesus and Asian Jesus and on down the lines. There is truth and lies, there is light and darkness. There is Christ and Belial, and Belial can look like Hinduism. Belial can look like materialism or atheism or apatheism. I just don't care about anything. Satan's great with that. You can have that version. You can worship in that way. All there is is Christ's church and the rest of the world. Jesus said so, John 15, verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world but i chose you out of the world because of this the world hates you because of this the world hates you they were in the upper room when jesus said this they weren't out they weren't out you know getting beat up for a little while paul you know gets to come back peter having you know caught some heat been arrested a few times no 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 he's telling them this as present tense before it even starts the world hates you this is why the true church will never be tolerated very long in a particular culture and why false churches spend all their time their time just trying to win the approval of society. If you're constantly trying to say, hey, we're not that weird, we're not that bad, Jesus gets you. He's just your cosmic buddy in the sky, knows exactly what you're going through. You're just trying to win the world's approval. But the mission of the church is not to do that. It's to display the manifold wisdom of God and it's seen in heaven as it is on earth. Verse ten goes on, made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. It the scholars and commentators go back and forth on those rulers and authorities in heavenly places. We're talking about uh, all of the angelic realm, demons and angels alike, you know, fallen angels and and true angels. We're talking about just because in heavenly places, just the true angels, whatever it is, either way, you can make a good case for it either way. I think the stronger case is towards just the, uh, the, 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 the true angels, the ones who haven't fallen. But either way, the church is something that the angelic realm, they didn't even know and understand from the Old Testament. We, we sometimes put angels as like some kind of super humans or, or they're, 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 they're almost deities, but they have limited, they're created creatures too. So they're not a part of the church because they're a different category. And then they're seeing it happen going, that's how it was going to go? That's how it unfolded. I mean, there couldn't be a bigger divide in the first century than Jews and Gentiles. They hate each other and the Gentiles have all the power. And so they oppress the other ones and then they hate them for oppressing them and it goes back and forth and they go back. You brought them together? You, you made them one? They're on the same level in the same playing field. They're, they're the same family. They're eating at the same table. I mean, this is mind-blowing to the heavens. And who did all this? Who did it? Christ did it. So that proves once again to the angels who do know that he is Lord, they see the proof he is Lord because he made all of these diverse peoples all one, all together. And here they are, the church, God working and saving sinners. That is really the central fact of history what we get told is that we we mark history by kings or by queens or by empires, by movements, ideas, philosophies that catch waves. No, the central reality of history is the church. All of world history is just church history. It's not politics, it's not economics. And the church is usually insignificant, usually small, seemingly powerless, yet international, and multilingual as a people, all united by one figure who walked on the earth for just 33 years, 2,000 years ago. That's the central reality of history. Human history is just a story of the church. While the invisible hand of providence and what God has done and is doing and will finish, that's the heartbeat. Because when the last day comes, who's going to be there standing? Just the church. No kings, no empires, no no powerful of this world and will all with one voice praise the sovereign God of all creation. And how can they do that? Verse 11 and 12, this is the church's mooring. Mooring is a fixed, secure status. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. This is in accordance with the eternal purpose, the eternal purpose of God. The confession says in, in uh, chapter three, verse one, or, or paragraph one, that God has decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever comes to pass. This includes the church globally as it exists everywhere. A church cannot falter, it cannot go down, it cannot be... Um, manipulated by outside powers because God has decreed that it will be and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. How will it be brought about? What does it say? In verse 11, he carried it out in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Jesus is the executor of God's will, a victory wrought by the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 4, 14 and following says, therefore, since we have, so, uh, have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. He's a high priest who has passed through the heavens. He lived a perfect life and died a perfect death. Hebrews 9, 11, and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, talking about heaven, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained an eternal redemption. Jesus didn't pay some, he paid all. He didn't execute part of God's will, he did it all. Jesus didn't get the ball rolling and then you take it on and carry it all in through. Jesus didn't say, let me see what you got and then I'll fill up whatever you're lacking. He did it all. He paid it all. He's the executor of the will of God. So therefore we are unshakable in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Meaning in Jesus, we have boldness and confident access to who? To God. We can go to God in confidence and boldness. Do you pray like that? Do you think like that? Do you, do you too often think God doesn't wanna hear from me or I'm not allowed there, I shouldn't be there? How, let's just make it in an example of a way that might communicate a little bit more clearly. What if your child treated you like that? Dad doesn't wanna hear from me. Mom doesn't want me to come crawl up in her lap. No, they don't, they don't want me. I mean, I'm in the house, they feed me. I'm, I'm good with that. I'm just gonna leave it like that. But, but mom and dad really don't want me. How would you feel if your kids told you that? You'd be crushed, but then also a little bit angry. No, I, I told you, open that door and come into me when you need something. Call me when you're in trouble. That's what we have through Christ. Hebrews four sixteen. therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If the Bible tells you to be confident, then be confident. If the Bible tells you that you can have boldness, then have it because God wants it for you. He's determined it for you. You're not doing him any favors. You're not looking more pious or more holy or more serious about your sin or your path towards holiness or whatever it is that's going on by not being bold and confident in his presence. That's what he said to do. And he's given us something that is unshakable. Verse 28, since therefore we, have, we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken. It cannot be shaken. As the church, we evangelize the lost, we disciple the saved, we worship the Savior, and that kind of church, a true church, is unshakable by the very decree of God. Our anchor holds. If you are in a boat in a storm in, in, in modern times or in ancient times and that kind of, you want your anchor to hold. Is it heavy enough? Is it strong enough? Is it hooked on a rock? Am I on the reef? Your anchor goes inside the veil, meaning right to the very presence of God, Hebrews says, and it will hold. We are the overcomers of Revelation 2 and 3. We are more than conquerors at the end of Romans 8. We have every reason in the universe for boldness and confidence in a sin sick and a dark world because the church has been given a medal. M-E-T-T-L-E, a unbreakable resilience. Ephesians 3:13. Last verse, therefore I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf for they are your glory. So Paul is talking about himself and his imprisonment. Don't lose heart. Yeah, Paul's in prison. Yeah, Ephesians, the day may come for you, but we know the sovereign God of the universe. Psalm 31, 23. Oh, love the Lord, all you as godly ones. The Lord preserves the faithful. What does he do with the faithful? He preserves them. Just, we just have to believe that. That's the hardest part. It's not hard to read. It's hard to do. It fully recompenses the proud doer. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who hope in the Lord. See, Paul's talking to them about the reality of tribulations, that they're just, they're gonna happen. To the true church, they're gonna happen. Acts 14, 22, through many trials and tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. We must, and many of them. This is something that we must all come to knowingly embrace. See, as a Christian, suffering and tribulations are a guarantee, but eternal life is also a guarantee. Godliness and faithfulness of the true church, it will ensure us some suffering. There's no question, it will. There is no way to actually proclaim the gospel and have no one at all revile against it. But evangelicalism has spent the last 50 years trying to come up with a way to present the gospel where at the very least, people are just indifferent. Best case scenario, they love it and they love you. Great. Worst case scenario, they're just like, eh, not for me. And if that's how you present the gospel, then whatever you presented was not the gospel. The gospel necessarily divides. Divides. People, you're going to have to talk about sin and hell and condemnation and repentance and faith and all of those things. You're gonna to have to, otherwise it's not the gospel. We try to get around it, but you can't. The truth is you'll have to talk about those things and sinners will hate it when you insult their worship and you mock their gods. When you destroy their gods in front of them, they're gonna hate that because I worship that thing. And you just prove to me that it's impotent and that the way I've been living my life the entire time is a lie. That will either cause weeping and acceptance of the gospel or outrage. Maybe you get indifference here and there, but that's a more tragic reality because it's not even landing. But we're supposed to glory. What does it say in verse 13? My suffering, my tribulations, Paul says, are your glory. Romans eight eighteen. for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy not worthy to be compared with the glory that has to be revealed to us. It's not even worth talking about. That's why Paul barely mentions them. Second Corinthians is what we got, but that's just the high points. It's not even worth talking about. What is this suffering? What does it amount to? 80, 90 years and it's all over forever? That's it? 80 and 90 years on the span of world history is not even a time period worth talking about. That's like a couple of Americas that's that's it. nothing but glory on the other side. so this is why when you read the the martyrs that die, I mean think about this in the fifteen hundreds in England, Protestant England, people are being put to death for preaching the gospel. Well actually this is Catholic England because Bloody Mary is the queen, and she's putting to death two men, Hugh Latimer and Mortimer Ridley they're being tied to a wooden post covered with brambles and sticks to be lit on fire. And this is what Hugh Latimer says to his friend Ridley. He says, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. How can you say that when the executioner is like striking the flint to get the hay to burn, to burn the sticks, to burn you. Because you live with verse 13 as a reality. Don't lose heart in tribulations. They're for your glory. The the suffering of ministers, here, this is where we're gonna be done. The suffering of the ministers of the church, the faithful of the church, it shouldn't dishearten us or cause us to doubt the gospel. I know there's the, the, the movie out, The Essential Church, it's great, really well done. Went and saw it. You should see it too if it's still out there. But when you see that pastor, Tim Stevens in Canada, arrested in front of his weeping children and his crime in a first world developed country was having church. Having church got arrested. When you see that, then you think, you could be tempted to think then what are we, even? this is not, this is crazy is this the real thing? Is this church, is this gospel, is this Jesus the real thing? But what it should, on the other hand, encourage you to think is it obviously is the real thing because why in the world you hosted an optional weekend event, max two hours? And his church was tiny and they hated him enough for that to take him to jail in front of his eight weeping children on TV, that should not discourage us. It should encourage us that churches treated in the way that they are. I mean, we're not even talking about the persecution in China, Nigeria, Southeast Asia, Iran, Afghanistan. We're not even talking about those places. All it should do is just prove the gospel more true. You shouldn't think maybe that Christianity is not real. Maybe, maybe the gospel is not true. Maybe Jesus isn't the only way to heaven because of these things. No, it should make you think, obviously it is. Why are you so manifestly hated everywhere that you go? No matter what language that you speak, that's the one group that's hated. And do you think, I was reading this statistic the other day, you know when the worst year globally for Christian persecution was? You know when that year was? It was 2022. Statistically, 2022, not 1800s, not 1700s, not Stone Age. 2022, the number of deaths, harassments, church closings, findings, all these things and all over the globe. So what else would explain that except for that it must be the truth and there must be a Satan who absolutely hates it. 2 Timothy 2:10. Paul says, for this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus. And with it, eternal glory. There's so much in there. We don't have time to pull it out. We're not going to, but he says it's worth it. I'll endure whatever it is for the sake of those who are chosen so that they might obtain salvation with his Christ Jesus. And with that salvation comes eternal glory. That's the church. So we press on because we have a message, we have a mission, we are a mystery revealed. And we have a mooring that can't be moved and we have metal that can't be broken. And a savior that says to repentant sinners upon their deaths, today you will be with me in paradise. Today, you will be with me in paradise, Jesus says. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for a text like this we thank you for allowing us to have the time to to go slowly, long over a text like this that would normally we would pass by. It doesn't seem to be the most obvious rich text that just pop out with immediate applications and thought-provoking statements. And we're just so thankful to have been, been proved again that your word and every square inch of it is inspired by the Holy Spirit and profitable for teaching for correction, for reproof, and for training in righteousness so that we all might be the man of God, the minister, chief above all, adequately equipped for every good work. We thank you for the the effectiveness of your word. And we ask that you would help our church. Lord, we pray specifically for our church here gathered in this room right now that we would never move from what you call the minister to be, the message to be, the mission to be, the mystery to be, the mooring and the metal—that we would never move one inch off of that, Lord. It will be difficult in some days, whether it's outside persecution or it's just our own sinfulness flaring up. Lord, me chief among all, but may we never move one inch off of what you've purposed your church to be by its very nature. May we be that. May we show grace to each other when we sin and move from that. May we be an encouragement to rally together and locking arms with each other in that. May we meet needs inside the body. May we weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. May we evangelize the lost, disciple the saved, dig into your word, purge sin, pursue and hunger and thirst for righteousness and do that relentlessly until you return. And we know that that'll come in season and waves and we know that things will happen that will increase our availability and decrease our availability. We understand all of that. But may we continue to just put one foot in front of the other, one foot in front of the other as we plod the pilgrim path to the eternal city that has been made without hands, whose designer and builder is you yourself. Bring us all the way home, all together. We thank you for this time. We thank you for this space. We thank you for receiving our worship, though it was inadequate. Nevertheless, you have grace upon grace to receive our humble offerings. And we thank you for your mercy that you show to us. And it all comes to us through Jesus, the great executor of your will and the redeemer of our souls. It's in his name that we pray, amen.